0: You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Analyzing the housing market can be so complicated. There are many opinions on issues that impact investors, including which are the best markets, single family versus multifamily investing, housing inventory, demographic shifts, renter preferences, mortgage rates, the strength of the U.S. economy overall, and so much more. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Today's guest is an expert on housing data and will help us answer a lot of these questions. Frank Nothaft is CoreLogic's chief economist. He leads a team of economists who analyze and forecast trends in global real estate, insurance, and mortgage markets. He's also held leadership positions at Freddie Mac and the Federal Reserve. And he recently received the NABE Outlook Award for the Most Accurate Macroeconomic Forecast for 2018. He's also earned the Certified Business Economist designation from NABE and holds a PhD from Columbia University. And he's here with us
1: on The Real Wealth Show.
0: Welcome, Frank.
1: Thanks so much for having me today, Kathy.
0: There's so much going on in the news, and people are questioning what's real news and what's fake news these days. <laughs> I think that uh, data, it just speaks for itself, I hope.
1: Oh, I hope so, too. Uh, you know, the data are what the data are, So, uh, and I, I tell you, I've never met a piece of data that I didn't like.
0: <laughs> well, that is a good thing uh, that you're in the business of data. So let's just look at some of the headlines we're seeing. We we see headlines that say there's a shortage of housing inventory. Is that true?
1: Oh, yes, it is true. The inventory of homes available for sale right now, it's the lowest that we've seen in decades. What we do is we actually measure the uh, number of homes offered for sale, and we compare that with the overall housing stock. Because over time, the number of homes in the United States grows because of new construction. So when we look at the number of homes being offered for sale relative to the entire housing stock in the United States, gosh, it's the lowest we've seen in 30 years.
0: Wow. And why is that?
1: Well, in large part, it's because we're not building enough new homes. So single-family home building got hit really hard during the Great Recession 10 years ago, and it's been crawling back, and single-family starts are rising Uh, Housing starts are up year after year after year. But even with the latest data for 2019, housing starts are still well below the level that we need just to keep up with the amount of household growth there is in the United States. And so that means that over time, it creates kind of like a almost like a shortage, you know, a limited number of homes available on the market for either um, buying or even for renting.
0: Is the housing shortage affecting both home buyers and renters?
1: It is, but it's uh, you probably feel it more if you're a home buyer, and that's one reason we're seeing home prices rise more quickly than rents. Rents are up too. For example, we measure uh, single-family rent growth. Rents are up three percent nationally over the last year. That's compared with inflation running about one and a half percent over the last uh, twelve months. So rents are rising twice as fast as inflation. But if we look at house prices, house prices are rising even faster than rents. In the last year, house prices have been up about three and a half to 4%. Now, when we look at the rental market, at least there's been a good amount of multifamily apartment construction. Over the last three years here in the US, builders have built about 1 million rental homes in apartment buildings. That's the largest number of rental homes in apartment buildings built in 30 years over a three-year period. So we are producing a lot of rental homes. uh, Still, vacancy rates for apartments are at 30-year lows. And that's one reason we're continuing to see rents rise. And when we look at the for-purchase market, it's even more severe. We're not building enough new single-family homes We're not building hardly any condominiums in high-rises nationwide, and that's the reason the inventory of homes available for sale is at the lowest level in 30 years.
0: Wow. Do you have any concerns about overbuilding in the multifamily sector? Is there a lot more units coming on over the next three years, say?
1: It does look like we're going to continue to see a good clip of uh, multifamily production over the next year. We've been running at about 340,000 multifamily apartments completed each year over the last three years, and I think we're going to see about the same number come online here in 2020. So we're going to continue to see that flow of new uh, multifamily apartments coming into the marketplace. I think there's going to be sufficient demand because all the new young families, the households that are being created and looking to find shelter... Many of them might want to buy a home, but they see prices are really high and they find that there's not much inventory to choose from. And so for many of them, they're going to end up choosing to stay in uh, rental homes a bit longer.
0: Now, I didn't prepare you with this question and you don't have to answer it, but if you were gifted a million dollars and you had to invest it in real estate, which would you choose? Would you go for multifamily or single family, given the the lack of single family out there?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think residential property is going to do actually pretty well uh, over the next uh, several years. Uh, About a year ago, I took a look at what the um, total rate of return was for investing in multifamily apartment buildings compared with investing in single family homes. It actually turned out that the total rate of return was about the same over the prior five years. So I think over time, we'll continue to see that residential property, whether it's single family or apartment buildings, will probably have about the same rate of return. Now, when you compare it with non-residential, there's some big differences out there. I'm a little bit worried about retail uh, over time, uh, simply because so many more buyers are now buying online. We see the growth of e-commerce. So I'm a little bit worried about retail as a sector to invest in. I don't think it's going to fare quite as well. But I think residential property is going to do pretty well regardless of whether it's single family or multifamily.
0: Hmm. Great. Well, good to know. All right. So are there certain areas that are growing faster than others where there's more of a need for housing, whether it's rental or for sale?
1: Well, absolutely. That's true. And it's a continuation of a trend that's been going on for a couple of hundred years here in the United States. Namely, the population is moving from the Northeast and from the Midwest and moving South and moving West. And that trend has continued. In the latest data we got from the US Census Bureau for population in 2019, what we saw was that the states that had the biggest population increase in terms of number of people were Texas, Florida, and Arizona. And if we look at at what states had the fastest percentage growth in 2019 compared with 2018, it was uh, Idaho, Nevada, and Arizona. And the two states that lost the most population in 2019, they were New York and Illinois. Again, a continuation of a trend that's probably been going on 150, 200 years, where population in the U.S. is gradually moving from the Northeast, Midwest, shifting south, shifting west. When we look at new home construction, the two largest markets in the U.S. in terms of new single-family construction are Dallas and Houston metro areas. Both of them just top the list by far. Just in 2019, the uh, Dallas and Houston metro areas, each one of them had 32,000 new single-family home sales, newly built single-family homes. So those are the two big markets. And if we look at the markets that round out the top 10, four of them are in Texas, a couple of them in Florida. Those are some of the big markets where people are moving to. They're moving there for uh, affordability, for job opportunity, uh, for outdoor amenities.
0: I didn't hear Atlanta on the list.
1: Actually, Atlanta, I think, was in the top 10. Yes, uh, Atlanta was in the top 10 as well.
0: I I thought it might be interesting. Uh, Yeah, we're in the home building business as well. And uh, we've been building in Reno and Tampa and in actually Bozeman, Montana, where we've seen a lot of growth. In fact, uh, I just got our quarterly update on that. We already have people wanting to buy homes and, and we're just breaking ground. So. Um, demand in places we didn't even really, one wouldn't expect, and not necessarily on the map of demographic growth.
1: Well, I tell you, one of the top markets has been Boise. Boise is booming. People are moving there from uh, California, uh, some from Washington State. They're moving to uh, Coeur d'Alene, which is a little bit further north in Idaho, and they're moving to Boise. Boise is a market where we saw 10% house price growth over the last year. That's how strong and vibrant it is. And that's even with a lot of new single-family construction, prices are still going up by about 10% last year on existing properties. Would you say that's retirees? Well, some of it. Uh, some of it is uh, you know, people who are moving there for the uh, outdoor amenities. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them are moving there because it's a bit more affordable than what they're accustomed to maybe in the San Francisco Bay Area or down in uh, Los Angeles and some of them are moving there for the job opportunities. So we're beginning to see some of the tech companies diversify out of Seattle, out of the San Francisco Bay Area, out of SoCal, and they're looking for more affordable places to locate their uh, activity. So some of them are moving to Boise, some are moving to Colorado, some are moving down to uh, Dallas and and Austin, Texas.
0: You know, it seems like metrics are changing. I mean, I've always said follow the jobs, follow the population growth and affordability. But it seems like these days, people more and more can live anywhere because they can work remotely. And there's a whole lot of people retiring and they can literally live anywhere. What they're really seeking is a good life and uh, they don't need a job. They're looking for a place where they don't need a job, where where it's affordable, right? So it sort of changes at least what we've been looking for, which is primarily job growth. Of course, that's still a great metric, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well job growth is important is that the, you, you know, the local community needs to have a variety of amenities that are uh, attractive uh, for uh, you know, the style of, of life that um, you know, people like to have. I think mean, that's one thing that's uh, attractive uh, for many of the communities in the south, uh, and even up in the mountain states as well, because uh, there, there are a lot of amenities, outdoor amenities, some of the states actually have no. Income tax, and so you know they they are a little bit more affordable as well, uh, and that's been attractive to um, higher income, mm-hmm. higher wealth individuals, and for some seniors who are concerned about their income cash flow in their retirement years.
0: Yeah, all right. Do you have any concern about the article that came out saying there would be a plethora of homes available uh, once the seniors die? It was like a million. <laughs> Thing. I mean, what are your thoughts? It, it seemed more like uh, trying to attract headline rather than actual news. What, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, that is my thoughts. Uh, you know, stories like that do come around periodically, but uh, there are far more uh, younger folks <laughs> in the population than there are older folks. Uh, so, for example, uh, life expectancy in the U.S. today nowadays is, is 79 years. So I took a look at the uh, size of the population here in the US uh, between the ages of uh, uh, 75 and 84 so centered right around 79 that's about 15 million folks here in the United States and I compared that with the number of you know kind of prime potential first time home buyers aged 25 to 34 so again a 10 year range of ages, just like for the older population. In that 25 to 34-year range, Kathy, there were 46 million Americans in that range, more than three times the number of Americans aged 75 to 84. Again, I'm not saying everybody who's 75, 84, suddenly going to die tomorrow or next year, but even if that should happen, Um, there's still not enough homes for all the um, uh, young millennials who are looking to uh, transition into single-family homes. Now, one question is the location of the homes. So um, uh, while many seniors have um, move south to warmer climates. You know, often it's Georgia, Florida, or it could be Arizona out toward the west or, or Nevada. We still are still a lot of you know seniors who are still living up north, and it may very well be that when their homes become available and come on the market, that may be in a in a market where a lot of the young millennials are not living today. You know, maybe they've moved out, maybe they've moved to the big tech centers uh, where there's a lot of job growth. Maybe they've moved to Austin, Texas. So if you've got a senior who um, puts their home on the market in Chicago, and yet you've got the millennial living down in Austin, Texas, um, you know, uh, that doesn't necessarily help the millennial in Austin who's looking to buy a home. (laughs) <laughs> so there is a little geographic mismatch uh, in terms of where, you know, seniors and millennials are living. But still, even if we saw, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody in that 75 to 84 age range put their home on the market tomorrow, that still wouldn't be enough homes for all the millennials who are out there looking to transition into home ownership.
0: Yeah. Do you think this lack of supply is because uh, we have such a large millennial generation and we have such a large baby boomer generation that's living longer and healthier and staying put. So people just aren't putting their homes on the market the way they used to. Is that is that part of the problem?
1: Well, that's part of the issue. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah, have a relatively healthy baby boomer cohort that is staying in their homes longer. And we've seen that in, in the data as well. The um, median number of years that an owner-occupant stays in their home has increased by four years over the last decade. And when you look at all of the homeowners in the US, the biggest portion of them are baby boomers. And they are aging and they're deciding to stay in place longer. And in general, they're a bit healthier too. So that's certainly uh, one issue. So that we, have, we see less homes coming on the market from um, uh, baby booms who are looking to sell their home and move somewhere else. But the other big factor is just new production. It's supply. And we're just not seeing enough single-family homes being built. We're running short by about, gee, a couple hundred thousand single-family homes a year. And after several years, that really adds up. So we're easily down a million to two million single-family homes relative to what we should have in order to meet the, uh, the growth in millennial families who are looking to uh, move into single-family homes.
0: Well, it sure makes me happy that we are in the home-building business. And <laughs> But what we have had to do is shift a little bit on some of our strategy. In, in Reno, we had two different developments, one higher-end and one more affordable. And uh, higher-end sales really slowed down. The affordables are moving quickly. So we've really just redesigned everything to be more affordable. I imagine you're seeing that uh, across the board.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. That's really been the trend over the last uh, three years or so. Developers are looking to add more affordable units because that's where the strong demand is. So, for example, on single family, we saw increases in in the square foot of space, living space, in new single family homes up to about three years ago. And over the last three years, the average new single-family home being built is a little bit smaller each and every year. Uh, And that's directly trying to address the need to have more uh, moderately priced new construction, new supply in the marketplace to meet that need. When we look at house price growth nationwide, I mentioned in in 2019 it was about 3.5% in our national index. But when we look at it in our CoreLogic Home Price Index by price tier, where we separate out lower-priced homes compared to higher-priced homes, the fastest price growth is in that lower-priced segment, where price growth is is much faster than 3.5% over the last year. It's more like 5% or faster in that lower-priced tier. And that's because there's such strong demand from millennial first-time home buyers and such limited supply available on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Not only that, Kathy, but you know the first-time home buyers who are looking to buy; they're competing with single-family investors who want to buy those homes as well. And so you have millennial first-time home buyers bumping up against demand coming from single-family investors, and they're all find out outbid each other for the same type of moderately priced home.
0: Now, would all this housing demand and household formation slow down in a recession? And do you see one coming? I know that's a question you hear all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't see any recession here in 2020. In fact, what we expect is that the economy will continue to grow at about a 2% clip. What does that mean? That means the economy will grow quick enough to create lots of jobs that I think it might even nudge the unemployment rate a little lower. So right now, the unemployment rate is 3.5% nationwide. I wouldn't be surprised if we see it move down a tenth, maybe even two-tenths of a percentage point during the course of 2020. Uh, But, you know, business cycle has never been repealed. It will definitely have a recession at some point. I don't know if it'll be 2021 or 2022. I'm pretty certain it will not be in the coming year. But at some point, there will be uh, a recession maybe a couple of years from now. And when that happens, we generally do see a slowdown in uh, household growth. That is the number of people who form households. Um, and that's usually related to the fact that the unemployment rate goes up. Uh, people have less cash in their pocket in order to afford to either rent a home or to buy a home. And they choose to um, you know, uh, live with their roommates or uh, you know, live with family members. Oftentimes, it's kids moving back in with parents. And that's typically what we see during um, a recession, some slowdown in uh, the rate of growth of new households.
0: Yeah. And so is there a way to protect yourself from that potential slowdown if you're owning a bunch of rental properties? I mean, do
1: you have... Well, you- uh, in, in my mind, if, you, if you've made the decision to invest in um, residential investment properties, the better quality residential investment properties are the ones that are going to be more likely to retain tenants and have a lower vacancy rate. So looking at the multifamily space, if you have a class A or class B property, I tend to think they'll probably outperform class C properties. Uh, If you've got a single family home or, or a property building that's closer in to the downtown with a shorter commute to where the jobs are, that'll probably retain value better than a, a, a rental home that's at the fringe of the urban area with long commute times. So that's that would be my hunch of what we'll most likely see because that's, that's really what we saw during the Great Recession. It's the uh, homes that were on the edge of the metro area where there had been a lot of new construction. Those are the ones that lost value the most and we're slow to recover in value once the uh, economic recovery took off.
0: And people do tend to rent more in a recession, it seems. Do you see some of these headlines that we're becoming a renter nation? And do you believe that to be true?
1: I see those headlines, but you know, the homeownership rate is still 65% in the United States. And it's actually increased over the last couple of years. And I've looked at a lot of these surveys of um, attitudes of millennials where, you know, the surveys try to get into the head of millennials. What are they thinking? What's their attitude toward uh, shelter, toward renting versus owning? And my read on it, Kathy, is that millennials have the same desire to be homeowners as their parents did. They just have a recognition that they may transition into home ownership at a little bit later age. So maybe their parents became homeowners in tw- you know in their late 20s. For millennials, it might be you know mid 30s, might be late 30s before they transition into home ownership. The um, median age of a first-time homebuyer today nationwide is 32, uh, but in some high-cost markets, it's a lot higher, like in California, where housing is very expensive. The median age of a first-time buyer is 35. Yeah, oh,
0: it seems still pretty young.
1: Considering. Uh, still still young, but, you know, um, there aren't a lot of first-time homebuyers in California. <laughs> That's true. I,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people have said that millennials are behind, that they're not building wealth as quickly as they're, you know, the generations before them. But I often say, yeah, but they're going to inherit all that. <laughs> And, I, <laughs> and when I say that, I had two people come up to me at the last event, and they both inherited quite a lot of money and didn't know what to do with it. Uh, do you think that's what we'll see, um, you know, the millennials kind of coming around and inheriting their, inheriting property and, and money to buy property?
1: Oh, well, I tell you, the, the baby boom cohort is the wealthiest cohort that we've seen in the, in the United States history. So um, I think they have a, you know, a bequest motive, uh, just like other uh, cohorts. And so they'll, they'll be leaving a lot of wealth, um, you know, to their kids and uh, many of their kids are millennials. So um, I think that probably is a part of the equation. You know, part of the, the challenge for um, uh, young families today is also the amount of consumer debt that some of them have taken on. Uh, there are you know, a lot of stories about student debt, and student debt is now one and a half trillion dollars in the United States. And for those students who took on student debt but have something to show for it, they have their bachelor's degree, they have their master's degree, or maybe they took on a lot of debt and became lawyers and medical doctors, those see the promise of the return. From all that investment in education in terms of higher income for many years to come, and by far are very likely they'll be able to service the student debt as well as a mortgage debt when they finally choose to buy a home. What I'm more concerned about are the um, young people who took on student debt but didn't complete a degree. So maybe they just you know, whatever issues came up, they weren't able to complete college. So they don't have that promise or that hope of higher income earning capacity over time. And yet they're saddled with this debt they took on. For them, it's going to be just that much more difficult to not only service the debt, but even if they can successfully service student debt, you know, where are they going to have the leftover income flow to actually take on a mortgage? So for them, it's, it may actually be even far more difficult to transition into homeownership.
0: And that's not the only debt to be looking at. There's the auto debt and the credit card debt and, uh, of course, corporate debt.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh you're absolutely right, Kathy. Yeah, student debt is just one part of it. I mean, the auto debt is almost the same size. It's $1.3 trillion. And then if you add in uh, consumer credit, uh, credit cards and, and the rest of consumer credit, that's another $1.3 trillion. There's over $4 trillion in consumer debt outstanding in the United States today. there's a lot of money.
0: And that really blows the debt-to-income ratios. Now, I just read that the guidelines are changing with the DTI, the debt-to-income ratios, maybe to uh, be able to accommodate all this debt. Have you heard anything about that?
1: Uh, Well, uh, there's a a lot of thing at play right now because the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is revisiting its uh, qualified mortgage rule that it um, promulgated six years ago. And so they're revisiting it and some of that regulation has to do with the maximum debt to income ratio that you know, lenders can underwrite mortgages to. So some of this is in flux and we'll have to see what happens when the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau puts out its new rule. For how uh, lenders can treat debt to income ratios and underwriting. And they'll be putting out this new rule, I suspect, sometime over the next uh, several months, uh, certainly within the next year.
0: Interesting. Okay, well, uh, you know, our time is up. I just thank you so much for the wealth of information you provided today and also ongoing. It's really helpful for those of us trying to figure things out
1: here. Well, thanks so much, Kathy, for having me uh, on today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as well.
0: I really appreciate it and hope to have you back soon.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kathy.
0: And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you're around on March 14th in the San Francisco Bay Area or on March 15th in the LA area, come join us at our live event. It's free and you'll get to meet a panel of our members who have bought income property in some of the fastest growing areas of the country. And they'll tell you about their experience, including what challenges they've had and what they've achieved. We have so many people asking us if they could talk to other investors and find out their stories. And this is a way to do it. Again, March 14th in the San Mateo area in Northern California and March 15th in the Los Angeles area. Both of these events are right near the airport. So that's why lots of people fly in to attend. We'll also have full service income property providers from Ohio, Florida, and Indiana to tell you about where the rental demand is in their markets and how you can acquire either fully renovated properties or brand new properties in their markets. You can find out more at realwealthshow.com. I hope to see you there. Bye-bye.